Good evening. If you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be in our lesson this evening. So this morning we looked at Genesis really 1 through 3, and we talked a little bit about creation. We talked a little bit about man's role and and humanity's role within creation. Some of the uh, jobs that Adam and Eve were given, and how rather than living up to those jobs, they lived in such a way and made decisions that ended up casting them away from the garden that they were supposed to be there to cultivate and to serve, and the cultivation of the ground, which was central to their human task, all of a sudden becomes far more difficult, and multiplying and filling the earth for Eve becomes far more difficult. These are some of the consequences that stemmed from that sin in in the Garden of Eden, where they chose the, the knowledge of good and evil over a knowledge of God. They chose to be able to have wisdom in their own right rather than a wisdom that came from, uh, from the one who created them. And so as human beings reached for their own wisdom and uh, reached for their own knowledge as a source of right and wrong, what ends up happening in the story from that point forward is things spiraled terribly out of control. What we're going to do in the lesson tonight is look at uh, the next result of that. As things begin to spiral out of control, we're going to look at their children. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Cain and Abel in a, in a well-known and familiar Bible story there. It uh, begins what will become a major theme throughout the book of Genesis of sibling rivalry. Uh, anyone with siblings knows a little bit about sibling rivalry, but if you read Genesis, I mean, it's, it's in pretty much every sibling relationship that you see, they're not going to get along with each other. If you meet a man and then you meet his brother, you've met his enemy uh, throughout Genesis, like over and over again. It starts with Adam and Eve. uh, I mean, it starts with Cain and Abel. um, But just as you keep reading, you'll see that uh, there ends up being a conflict with uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, You keep reading, you'll see that there's conflict between uh, uh, Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael, certainly. And then you have uh, the the twin sons of of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. They didn't get along too well for for a lot of their relationship. There's, There's rivalry and there's conflict there. And then Jacob has these these 12 sons, and uh, if you remember their stories, uh, they end up having one of them named Joseph, and they hated him to the point that they wanted to kill him. They ended up shipping him off into slavery. Uh, You end up with uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, and one of them gets the, the younger gets the blessing over the older. That's one of the other ideas that you see over and over again. Not only do you have sibling rivalry, but the way the ancient world worked is generally speaking, the firstborn is supposed to be the one who gets the blessing. He's supposed to be the one who uh, is um, given the responsibility to take over the family, and the the line kind of continues through him. But so often in Genesis, you come to find out that the younger or the the second or the lastborn uh, ends up being the one who receives the blessing instead with with Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain is the firstborn, and yet Cain is the one who ends up cast away into exile uh, and away from the presence of, of God. You end up with um, with Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was actually the older brother, but Isaac was the one who got the blessing with Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother, but Jacob's the one who got the blessing. When it came to Jacob's 12 sons, you don't have uh, the favored son, the one who's given the coat of many colors. That's Joseph, and he's second to last. And so like over and over and over again, the expectation is reversed. And with that reversal of expectation, you also see a tremendous amount of conflict. You also see a lot of bitterness and a lot of hatred. One of the things that the early chapters of Genesis do, 
really the first 11 chapters uh, very much, but especially the chapters that we're looking at, is they not only tell you about past events, right? They not only tell you about a family of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, uh, and then Seth. They, this family is, is an archetype for what human experience will be from that point forward. And what I mean by that is we can think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as something way back then, but I think what we're supposed to do is read this as though we're daily faced with decisions. Are we going to choose our way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and choose wisdom for ourselves, or are we going to choose God's guidance? Uh, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is alive and well in every one of our lives, and we walk past it every day, and sometimes we probably spend a little bit too much time staring at it, and sometimes we might even reach up for it and grab it. Uh, there, are, there are stories in Genesis that explain life as we know it. Uh, why is it that it's so unbearably uncomfortable outside sometimes. And why is it that we have such a hard time getting our gardens to grow? Well, you read the story of Genesis and you, the first chapters and you think, okay, I'm, I'm seeing something there. Uh, when the pain of childbirth comes upon a woman, that was, I mean, that's still a major concern in, in life today. And it certainly was back in ancient Israel and throughout most of world history. It's a very dangerous time. And Genesis gives you the foundation story of, of that difficulty. Why is it that we must work in the, with the sweat of our brows? Why is it that uh, there is so much uh, pain in childbirth? Why is there hostility between man and snakes? Why, like, why is the world the way that it is? Why is it that human beings have a constant struggle between being what we know we ought to be but then also looking at what we are in, in dealing with that. We, I think any human who is honest recognizes that there's something greater to which we are called, but we find ourselves sometimes floundering uh, in a world that could be much better than it is. And in all of those ideas, they have their origin story here. Well, the origin of sibling rivalry is going to take place right here. The origin of most of Israel's enemies takes place right here in the early chapters of Genesis. We, we begin to see where the Moabites come from and where the Edomites come from and where all of these nations that surround Israel that they have their, their battles with, where Babylon comes from, with the Tower of Babel. Like, all of these enemies about around Israel, their origin stories are in Genesis. That's actually what, what the word Genesis means. You know, it's the beginnings, the origins. That's, it's the, it's, it is explaining why the world is the way that it is. And so when you look and you ask the question, why is the world as difficult and as rotten and as violent as it is, I think when you go to Genesis, you'll start getting some of those types of answers. You, you, you see the rejection of God's wisdom for human ways of doing things, and you see how that can spiral out of control. Well, in chapter 4 of Genesis, we're getting the story of Cain and Abel which plays right into that motif. It plays right into uh, explaining why it is that the world is the way that it is. And it's the first murder. Um, one thing that's it's not a good fact about humanity is the first recorded born person, like the first human who is born in the story, is also a murderer. Um, and, and so that's, that's not a good track record uh, up to that point. Um, but Cain is the first person who's born, and uh, we'll start reading about him in chapter 4 and verse 1. 
Now the man, uh, Adam, had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child uh, with the help of the Lord, is how, is how my Bible translates that. That phrase uh, is actually can be translated a couple of different ways, but one of the things that seems to, to pop out is the word Cain, or the name Cain, sounds a lot like the word uh, I have gotten in Hebrew, or I have, uh, um, I have um, brought uh, a child. Like It's translated a couple of different ways, but the word Cain plays off of that word, and so that Cain is something that was given by God, is, is received from God. Uh, and so Cain is given that name because he was, he was a gift from God. Um, but then you get this other child in verse 2. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain is a tiller of the ground. Now, on the one hand, uh, you, you have a clear distinction between them uh, because one is the older, one is the younger, but then you also have a difference in profession. Uh, Abel works with the flocks and Cain works with the ground. Um, by the way, both of those seem to be ideas that go back to Genesis, what the vocation of man is, to rule the animals well, but also to uh, multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to cultivate the land. So, so those creation vocation and principles, they're continuing on in the lives of the children. And, and Adam, or in Cain and Abel are doing two different, two different works. But just like Cain's name has meaning, Abel's name has meaning as well. Um, so the name Abel, uh, in Hebrew, it's going to be something like Hevel. And that's a word that you can read right here in the Genesis story, but it also is one of the key words of a different book in the Bible. And that other book helps you, I think, a little bit understand kind of what this name means. Um, when you open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes and start reading, you're going to notice a phrase from the very beginning that pops up over and over again. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity, as uh, it's translated in a lot of Bibles, is the Hebrew word hebel. Um, it's the word that we see right here in the name of Cain's brother. Um, his name is basically a word that means uh, a breath that appears for just like a brief instant and then is gone. If you reach for it, you'll grab nothing. It's ultimately vanity. It's meaningless. Uh, it's something that, uh, it's like a mist that uh, not only is a mist something that's not tangible, you can't grab it and hold on to it, it's also something that appears just for a little while. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is this lengthy look at what this world actually is. And so many of the things that we think will give purpose and meaning to our lives end up just being pebble. They end up just being the thing that, that it, you can see it. You can see it right there, but you reach for it, and it goes right through your fingers. And then all of a sudden it's gone, and you can't see it anymore. It's that thing that, that looks like it's right in front of you, but all of a sudden when you reach for it, you find no lasting meaning there. Uh, you, you, the book of Ecclesiastes describes things like wealth, like toil, like prominence, or those types of things. I've heard some say that Ecclesiastes is ultimately the life of Cain writ large. Um, I'm sorry, the life of Abel writ large. Abel's life, it looks like there's going to be so much promise there. Uh, we know that he is a tiller, uh, or he, he's, a, he's a shepherd, uh, and we know that he offers sacrifice to God. We know that sacrifice is pleasing to God, and we don't know much else about him other than that. But the things about Abel are the things that 
boy, it sounds like he should be one of the people who above all is, is blessed in this world. I mean, he's a hard worker. He loves God. He's faithful. Uh, he offers sacrifice. He offers the very best sacrifice that he has. And yet, what is his future? Is it blessing? Is it prosperity? Is it happiness? No, people hate him for it, and his brother kills him for it. And that's one of the major questions that the wisdom literature grapples with. Like, why is it that bad things happen to someone who should have a better future than that? Well, one thing that's long been noted is the wisdom tradition of Israel. It pops up in in our Old Testaments a lot, but a lot of books are really dedicated to it. Books like Proverbs and books like Ecclesiastes and and Song of Solomon and and some of these books, they focus on the question, um, Job, why is it that... uh, bad things happen to good people. And if you read Proverbs, you're going to get a lot of wisdom about the fact that if you live a wise life, you'll probably do pretty well. Wisdom usually will lead to a better life. But when you read books like Job and Ecclesiastes, you get kind of the counterpoint to that, which is saying, but not always. Uh, Sometimes, you could be doing things the right way. You could be living with godly wisdom and trying your best and being righteous and good, and things will still spiral out of control. And what is it called when you have a goal and you're working towards it and you think that you're able to accomplish it and you think that it's right there in front of you and you're going to put your effort into it and then all of a sudden it's gone and your life is out of control and you can't reach it anymore? That's Hevel. That's, that's Abel. Uh, that's what Abel's life is. There's long been a connection, I think, as you read through those wisdom literature books and you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, I think you can find a lot of connections between them. It's almost like Genesis is giving you how things got out of control in this world, and the wisdom literature is trying to show you how you can make the best of it in this dark and murky world that we now live in. And you're just looking at some of the language, like of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have a tree that gives knowledge. And when the children of Israel eat from it, what happens? They begin to fear God. They fear him so much that they hide from themselves. One of the the theme passages, I think, for the book of Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, which says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise what guidance and instruction. What you have there is true true knowledge comes from the fear of of the Lord. What happens in, in this Genesis story is you have a desire for knowledge apart from God. And when you get that, it leads to the fear of God. You know, and that, that's not a bad thing, except it leads to a very unhealthy fear of God. It leads to a fear of God where rather than drawing closer to him in reverence, you hide from him and, and you try to, uh, you know, lie to him so as to not be seen or noticed by him. Like, it's, it's a fear that causes you to drift away from him. What Proverbs is trying to do is trying to restore what a proper knowledge is and what proper fear of the Lord is. It's, in essence, giving wisdom to reverse some of the bad wisdom that came in the Genesis story. And remember, that's actually what Satan said, or the serpent said would happen. It would open your eyes. It would make you wise. It would make you like God. He's offering wisdom apart from God. And the wisdom literature is offering wisdom firmly based and rooted in God. And so you see these connections a lot as you read through the early chapters of Genesis and the wisdom literature. Um, One of those connections is the life of Abel itself. The life of Abel becomes this life. It's brief. It doesn't accomplish a whole lot. 
it seems like it should go better than it does, and then it's cut off before anything happens. And it's cut off because of the wickedness of another. And so as we read through, uh, keep some of that in mind, because I think that, that ends up playing into what the whole point of this story is. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 4, in verse 3, it says, And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of the flock, of the, their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain, he had, uh, and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Okay, so now the problem between the two brothers is introduced. We've already, we've already gotten a couple hints about their lives based on their names, based on birth order, based on their occupation. But now those all come to a head and we find out what the problem is going to be. And they both offer sacrifice to God. Okay, so you would think, all right, that's, that's a positive for both Cain and Abel. They're both doing the right thing here. But something interesting happens. After the offering, it comes to find out that God has regard for the younger brothers rather than the older brothers. Now, a lot has been uh, written and pondered and meditated on about why, and we're not actually told why. And this is one of those questions, like, like I mentioned this morning. I think maybe one of the reasons we're not told why is so that we will spend some time thinking about it. And we know that that actually was, that, that has been done by early Jewish writers, early Christian writers from the earliest days uh, until now. There's been all kinds of ideas about, uh, about why and different ways of reading Cain and Abel. Augustine, uh, the great, you know, fourth century theologian, he kind of saw Abel as representing the city of the city of God, or which is kind of like the kingdom of God on earth, whereas Cain represents the the city of man and the the kingdoms of this world, and and uh, you have violence on one hand and you have faithful worship on the other, and and uh, because of that, you know, you have like God's looking at their kind of internally at them. Uh, you have some who basically. Uh, say that uh, God cared more about animals than he did fruit offerings. Like if you look at the sacrifices of Israel, uh, God wants them to offer fruit uh, animals. But the problem is he also wanted them to offer, you know, grain and, and fruit offerings as well. So, so it seems as though God is pleased with both types of offerings. Uh, I think, this would be my uh, answer to it if, if pressed, um, is on the one hand, it is intentionally laying the foundation of the sibling rivalry stuff that you're going to see throughout the rest of it. The fact that we're not given a clear answer gives us some stuff to meditate on and to, to think about and to discuss with one another, but I also think there's probably something to the fact that in verse 3, Abel's descri uh, sacrifice is described using like the minimal language possible. Uh, he brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. There's no mention of like first fruits or the best that he had or anything like that. Whereas when Abel's is described in verse 4, there's quite a bit of language that describes the firstling of the flock, of their fat portions. Uh, he's offering the best of the best flock that he has. And so in that, you might get the idea that Cain is, in essence, going through the motions of his sacrifice, whereas Abel's actually offering the very best. He's, he's actually offering a sacrifice that's a sacrificial to him, whereas Cain might be offering something less than that. Um, if that's the case, then that's a common theme that the Bible uh, shows over and over again, like the book of Malachi, you know, where they're bringing God their lame and weak sacrifices, and, and he's saying, would you offer these to your governor? Is that, is that really what you think that I deserve? It's just the worst that you have around? And, and in our worship and in our service to God, 
God, we can ask ourselves the same questions. Are we genuinely offering God the best of our time, the best of our uh, thoughts and our mind and our worship? Are we offering him sacrificial generosity? Uh, Is God worth sacrificing for? And uh, that might be a question that I think uh, pops from this uh, text right here. But notice, after the offering, Cain now has learned that Abel's was regarded well and his was not. So now he has some choices to make. He can say, oh, okay, God, what would you like me to do differently? Um, He could choose the option of, like, humility and repentance. Uh, And I'll try to do it different. I'll try to do it better. What what, what would you like me to offer an animal instead? You know, would you like me to offer the very best that I have? Is that what the problem is? Uh, Maybe the reason we don't know is because Cain never asked. And, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe he should have addressed God in prayer and tried to see what he could do differently. But instead, Cain doesn't do that. Um, Cain becomes very, very angry. And God notices this. And so, in uh, verse 5, it says Cain's countenance fell. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why, why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? It's like your face has fallen. If you do the right thing, it'll perk right back up. You know, you you don't have to be so angry right now. Uh, Just do the right thing instead. And so something Cain did is what was wrong. Uh, If he does the right thing in his sacrifice, then then it'll work out a lot better. Um, we, We see that and, you know, Cain and Abel, they pop up a couple of times in the New Testament also, uh, where Cain is described as one who did evil things, or Cain, Abel is described as one who, by faith, offers a more uh, excellent sacrifice than Cain. And so right here, we're seeing that Cain has the opportunity to make a change and to do things better. But instead, what happens, notice verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. Um, There's a consequence that Cain, if he doesn't make the right decision here, is going to have to be faced with. Sin is described, it's interesting how often in the Bible sin isn't simply described as something we do, but sin is described almost as a predator. Sin is described, it's personified as an agent that will attack us or try to destroy us. And he's saying, right now, Cain, The anger that you have and the wrong that you've done, they're giving you an opportunity to either do right or you can continue down this path and though you can't see it, the further you walk, there's an animal that's prowling around, that's crouching in the darkness, that's waiting. It will destroy you. It will master you. It will have uh, dominance over you. And that's what sin is. And so, so Cain has this decision to make whether he's going to change and do the right thing, or he's going to let sin take over. What's fascinating about this decision in verse 7, the language at the end of verse 7 says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Those last two phrases, its desire is for you, but you must master it. If you look back at chapter 3 in verse 16, To Eve, after her sin, describing the consequences of that sin, it says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Or, uh, it's actually the same word, he will master over you. Uh, And so what you actually have in chapter 4 and verse 7 says, sin's desire is for you, and it will rule over you. 
it's the same structure and the same wording as what was said to Eve as the result of her sin. And it's almost like there's, there's a connection saying, Cain, you can go the path that your parents have already trodden. You can go that way, and you can have some of the same consequences that they had, or you can choose a different direction. Um, what we'll see is some of the language uh, connecting back to, uh, to Cain's parents is, is reiterated again after the sin um, that, that Cain commits, and, and we'll see how that pops up. But Cain has now had a conversation with God, and God has directly called him to do better and to do the right thing, and things can go a better direction for him. But here's what Cain does instead. Verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And so Cain, rather than repenting, rather than doing something right the next time, he let anger fester and bubble over, and he let jealousy and anger turn into actual hatred and murder. Um, Not many people who murder I don't think a lot of them grew up thinking that they were going to be murderers. Um, Murder isn't something that happens just to people who go around wanting to murder all the time. Murder is like, like probably when, when you're told, do thou shalt not kill, like every one of us in here is going to think like, okay, you know, I'm pretty good at that. Uh, I I have that one down. Uh, I don't kill very often. Uh, And so, and so it's like, that's one that we think we have under control, but you know, even murder itself, when it comes to people who, if you have jealousy, if you have anger, and you don't try to leash it or control it or do the right thing or overcome it, but if you let it fester and build, it can lead to things worse than any of us expect. That happens. There are people who destroy their futures because they can't let anger go. Cain here you know, there, there's so many examples in the Bible of people who sinned, all right? They've already done the sin. Cain with his offering, he already made the mistake. But then you have an option. What are you going to do after that mistake? And there's an, God is astoundingly forgiving and loving. And, and he gives opportunity and he forgives time and time again. Uh, when you look at the crucifixion of Jesus, Judas and Peter both handled the events leading up to the crucifixion very, very poorly. Uh, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. But the stories from that point forward deal with, all right, once the mistake is made, what are you going to do about that? And Judas, he let it defeat him. And he, he ended up acting in violence against himself, and he ended up killing himself. Peter wept bitterly, but ended up reconnecting with the Lord, repenting, and living a life of faithfulness to God. And I think so often we find ourselves, like, we're going to sin. That's going to happen. You're going to do the first part of the story. You'll find that your sacrifice sometimes isn't what it should be. You've done the wrong thing. But then you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do about it now? Am I going to overcome this? Am I going to turn back to the Lord? Am I going to fall into his grace and forgiveness? Or am I going to let one sin lead to another sin, which leads to another sin. There's a phrase in Romans 6 about sin. It says uh, that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. And I think that so often is the case. It's like David, after, after sinning with Bathsheba, what was he going to do? 
Will he let it grow in one sin, turn into another sin, to another, into another sin, until he had her husband and other is in Israelites also? Uh, you know, her husband was a Hittite, but he had her killed in, or had him killed in battle, and he took her to be his his wife. It's like one sin led to an entire life spiraling out of control. And that seems to be the route that Cain chooses here as he goes and rather than repenting, rather than learning from Abel and saying, hey, what did you do? Maybe I can learn from you. Instead, he turns uh, into a, a murderer and acts in violence. So then you get verse nine. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You notice how God, after the sin, comes to them asking a question that's reminiscent of uh, chapter three in verse nine. After Adam and Eve eat from the tree, God comes, and he comes asking a question. It's a question, by the way, that I think he full well knows the answer to. They are hiding from him, and he says, where are you? Cain has just killed his brother, and he says, where is Abel? Uh, God's going to come, and, and just like Adam and Eve, uh, you remember Adam's response when God says, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Uh, like, the answer is an attempt to avoid the problem. Uh, Cain's going to do the same thing. Cain is first off going to lie, and then he's going to try to act like he, it's not even his business anyway. Uh, so he responds by saying in verse 9, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's like, I don't know where he is, which is a lie, and should I even know? Why are you asking me about this? And so he responds by trying to avoid God's question. And then God in verse 10 what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You are now cursed from the ground. Notice the parallels between Cain's story and the story of his parents. The story of his parents ends with the cursing and even the ground uh, being mentioned in uh, chapter 3 and verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Well, here Abel is told, now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So the futility in tilling and working the ground, the lack of cultivation, just like with Adam, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem with Cain now also. But also with Cain, he is going to be exiled from the land, which is a fascinating idea. Um, Ordinarily, in the Old Testament, murder is not punished with exile, but it's blood for blood. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 9, right after they get off of the ark, you see that same thing spilled out. Uh, if a man who sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because in the image of God he created them. So like, because you killed someone in God's image, the result of that is going to be uh, death itself. But what we have right here is, I think, God extending quite a bit of grace to Cain. Uh, it is, again, a demonstration of, of God's grace and goodness. He does not have Cain killed, but he does have Cain banished from that land, the land where his family is, and he has to go live in another land now. Now, Cain, in verse 13, he says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So one of the, uh, one of the things that in the ancient world, and again, it's difficult to talk too much about culture 
in Genesis 4, because some of these are ideas that certainly developed later, and you wonder if they play a role in the story. But one of the reasons that you wouldn't kill another person is because that person would have an avenger of blood. And one of the reasons it's difficult to be in exile in a foreign land is there's no avenger of blood if you're in exile in a foreign land. Like, your avenger, your closest relatives, they're way back there. And so Cain says, I'm going to walk into a new place. No one's going to know me. No one's going to, uh, uh, to you know, trust me. I'm not going to have anyone there to defend me or to protect me. I'm going to be killed also. And you would think at that point when Cain says that, God could say, yeah, you just killed your brother. <laughs> like, that's fine. <laughs> like, you, what do you think? You deserve better than that? Well, you know, be careful, but get out of here. Like, that's one option that God could say, because Cain doesn't deserve much better than that. But instead, God does something else. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, uh, whoever kills Cain vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. So instead of sending Cain out to die on his own, God says, you're going out, but you will have an avenger. I will be your avenger for you, and I'll avenge sevenfold what is done to you. And then he gives Cain a mark, and that mark is actually an act of salvation for Cain, saying, no one can harm you with this mark. It's a way of protecting him as he travels and goes into new lands. So God actually doesn't give up on Cain. He does kick Cain out of the land, and Cain's concern is that in verse 14, I will be driven from the ground and from your face I will be hidden. But God is still going to be with Cain even as he wanders into foreign and distant lands. And so uh, you, can, you can see then verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Um, one other theme that is, uh, pops up right here is the idea of heading east in, uh, in Genesis. And uh, you see east uh, happens, pops up quite a bit, and it's not always good when people travel east, uh, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, whether it's Babel, or whether it's leaving uh, Cain or leaving the Garden of Eden. Uh, whenever you see people traveling that direction, know that something uncomfortable is going to happen. But what ends up happening is uh, Cain ends up having a family, and once his family is described, you start seeing the same types of sins that Cain got wrapped up in begin to describe his family. Uh, very quickly, you see a guy named Lamech who pops up in verse 19, and uh, Lamech takes two wives for himself. That's the first example of polygamy. And then Lamech also he says to his two wives in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And he takes God's act of generosity towards Cain, and he uses that to say, well, I'll be I'll be a better avenger than God is, and I'll avenge myself. And if anyone ever even speaks a word against me, I'm not doing this eye for an eye stuff. You know, an eye for an eye is you knock out my eye, I knock out yours. What Lamech says is you knock out my eye, I'm going to kill you and your family. Like, I'm going to take what you've done and I'm going to expand it 77-fold. So if you insult me, I'll kill you. If you harm me, I'll certainly kill you. I don't care if you're a boy or a man. And all of a sudden, violence starts to grow from the line of Cain, uh, and that will be a storyline that leads ultimately to the flood in Genesis chapter 6. But as we read through this story, we see a lot of things pop up. 
we see the sin of Adam and Eve apparently didn't stay in the garden. But the types of decisions that they made are the types of decisions that humans are going to make after as well. And that's why there's so much shared language in these stories. It's showing you that the, the sin in Eden left Eden is now spreading throughout the world as well. And it's the same types of sins that we engage in as well. It's the same types of sins that make this world such a, an unpredictable and difficult place. It's the types of sins that can make this world hevel, uh, meaningless, where you think by worshiping and doing the right thing, things will go well for you, but you may end up like Abel. Uh, you may, even though you do the right things, suffer uh, wrath or suffer uh, misfortune, suffer death, even in this world that we live in. And there are some who are going to perpetrate that and continue in it, but even through all of it, God doesn't give up on his people. He goes off with Cain to be his avenger. He gives him a mark of salvation. And then for Adam and Eve, he gives them another child uh, named Seth, and he blesses them again. Uh, so we'll conclude the chapter and wrap up the lesson. Chapter 4 and verse 25 and 26. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring uh, in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, uh, to, Seth to him, uh, a son was born, and his name was Enosh, and uh, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so the, it ends with God's promise to bless and to multiply. You see that happening again with Cain and Abel. And then you actually start to see not just humans spiraling out of control towards more and more sin, but a point where people actually begin to call on the name of the Lord. And you can see that even in the mess, there are bright spots that shine. And even in, a, in the field full of tares, there's the wheat that grows also. And Genesis is going to show how those grow up together as the story uh, continues. But we all have decisions to make. And we all have uh, made wrong decisions. That's part of what the human journey is all about. Adam and Eve made the wrong decision. Cain made the wrong decision. But then you have a choice to make about that wrong decision. Are you either going to turn your life back to God, trusting in his grace and forgiveness, or will you let one sin lead to another, which leads to another, and in a cycle that leads you farther and farther away from God? And we know how Cain chose, and we know how Lamech chose, how will you choose? If we can help you tonight make the right choice, to choose uh, the forgiveness that God offers, we pray that you would let that be known, to choose repentance and to trust in the goodness of God. Uh, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.